Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah 29. And the last time the message was titled, well, the easy way or the hard way. And um, listen, we use that in our vernacular. We use it for different applications. Uh, But God really wants us to do it the easy way. You know, he does want us to come to him. And he did send his son to die for our sins. But sometimes with free will on our part comes a little bit of stubbornness. And today the message is titled, uh, Cultural Believers or True Believers. And what's really neat is, Whatever we see God dealing with his people, dealing with Israel, um, they were his people. They believed in him. But, you know, sometimes the attraction of the world and the things of the world just pulled them away from God. Some of them were in the community of God, but not really believers. You know, and boy, the parallels we can make today. Some grow up in a Christian home or they're married to a Christian spouse, uh, but they really have not made that jump, that leap to trust Jesus as their Lord and Savior for themselves. If we could put image number one up, in any time period under the umbrella of those that are called believers or God's people, you see, I I liked Venn diagrams when I was in school, so for those of you that brings you back to your grade school or high school, this is a Venn diagram, but basically the whole inside of this circle is the world. Today would be about 8 billion people on the planet. And then there's two other circles. There's subsets. One is the true church, right? Jesus says um, many in the world find the wide road that leads to destruction. So that's here and here. But there is a true church, a body of a group, a subset of people that believe in Christ and trust that he died for their sins. Now, when I did the parable of the wheat and the tares, the tares, sadly enough, were also those that Satan put people into the church to cause problems or ruckus, uh, to cause divisions and church splits and things like that. They really, you know, they, they, they kind of have a label, but God knows that their heart's not right. And in the, in the middle of where these two uh, meet is a subset considered Christendom. So all that was the children of Israel back then were not all true believers. Hey, 2,700 years later, All that say, hey, we're Christian, we call ourselves Christian, Christendom, they're not all believers. Um, But the true church is undiluted. The true church, no hoops we have to jump through, we just trust and believe and we're accepted by God, which is a beautiful thing. We're going to look at this in six parts. So making the application, jumping into verse 1, Isaiah the prophet, Woe to Ariel, or Jerusalem, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt, Add year to year, let feasts come around. Yet I will distress Ariel. There shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be to me as Ariel. I will encamp against you all around. I will lay siege against you with a mound, and I will raise siege works against you. You shall be brought down. You shall speak out of the ground. Your speech shall be low out of the dust. Your voice shall be like a medium's out of the ground, and your speech shall whisper out of the dust." So one out of six is woe to Ariel or woe to Jerusalem. I kind of got to have to set the stage for you. We're really in the 8th century B.C. 
Isaiah the prophet is very, a very prominent prophet to the people of God. And unfortunately, because of the decadence and the wickedness, a lot of what he's doing is warning them, you know, because their behavior was just so atrocious. Uh, but Jerusalem, when you look at all of Israel, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, the Assyrians were on the march. You know, the Assyrian Empire before the Babylonians, they were just licking up town after town, getting through walled cities. All of the northern kingdom was decimated all the way up to 721 B.C. Then the Assyrians moved on that line of demarcation, so to speak, to the southern kingdom of Judah. They started licking up towns one by one. Jerusalem was the last walled city left that they were encamped around. Uh, They were trying to get through the wall, and they were the last holdout, you know. God was still pleading with his people to change his ways, but he did preserve the city from the Assyrian onslaught. And unfortunately, at this point in time, not all of them, but many of them, many of them their faith was window dressing. They had the facade of the feasts, of the observances, of the heritage, but real, no relationship with God. Their practices were wicked. Now remember, these are under the banner or the moniker of God's people. You know, when we look at the Christian culture, we can see some similarities. You know, uh, we can see some very strange things that's called Christian, but when you look at the Bible, you're like, yeah, that's really not. So we'll talk more about that. Ariel, it means two things, right? The first translation in the Hebrew is Lion of God, the city of David. They had a great, rich history and heritage, but there was no current reflection of faith uh, for the most part. Um, And today, you you hear people talk about the good old days. You know, the Holy Spirit in any time period wants to do a new work. You know, the Holy Spirit is dynamic. The Holy Spirit is active. And you know, some today, they just kind of look back at, at their past as if they're living, but they're really dead. And that's sad. This city had great potential, but they blew it. You know, today we look at so many shooting stars. Everybody's looking for relevance. Everybody's looking for attention in this fast-paced audiovisual world. Uh, and some, in the, in the banner of Christendom and ministries, you see these shooting stars. They're not tested. But they, they, they go across the sky. They make a big splash. But a lot of them don't finish the race. We look at two. Ariel, the second definition, is an altar hearth or a place of sacrifice in the Hebrew. Uh, another meaning there. And basically what happened was, so the Assyrians are encamped. Um, It's just a lot of bloodshed, a lot of loss of life. And Jerusalem almost became a prison at some point because there was this siege system going on with this outside force. Uh, Inside Jerusalem became almost like a crucible. And and it was uh, like an altar hearth. There was loss of life. There was a lot of sorrow until the Lord in one night killed 185,000 of the Assyrian army and really turned the course of the Assyrian Empire. And they they were just cruel, they were wicked, uh, and God did spare Jerusalem. Jerusalem was going to be humbled because of their wickedness. We saw in the last chapter, God speaking about in chapter 28, the Lord is going to do a strange or an unusual work, right? Because the people were, were so... You know, it's funny, I can... Uh, listen, Israel was, was started, it was founded uh, on faith. You know, I know a lot, there's some discre- there's discussions about America and its founding principles. Was everybody Christian? No. Was, uh, was there a lot of Christian principles? Yes. So I do sometimes make the parable with the United States or the parallel 
or the parable, but it's not really a one-for-one. Okay, we have to, be, uh, we have to understand that. We, we really are a melting pot. We are a conglomerate, a composite of a lot of different um, faiths and belief systems, etc. But we, it, it is loosely based on Judeo-Christian values. So I'm going to sometimes move to the United States at times and say, hey, where are we? What's going on in our country? And I think things are getting worse, not better. But a lot of the themes that I'm going to speak about in Isaiah, Isaiah is one of those books where if you're coming to church to say, I really want to know the, the Word of God better, this is definitely the prophetic book for you. Um, a lot of the themes are predicated on former themes. So I would encourage you that if you're not here, uh, that you would get the message for free off the website because you, you're, we're building our foundation, we're building our faith. You know, I mean, there's some ministries that it's a lot of ooh and a lot of ah, and it's just designed for people to come and get uplifted on a Sunday and then just go what they, do what they want to do for the rest of the week. But that's not really how we're supposed to study God's Word. So we're in the 29th chapter, we're going to go all the way to 66 chapters, and there's going to be some interesting discussions that we're going to have in this book, but if we don't get some of the former teachings, we're not going to get it all. Verse 3, the Lord spoke in great detail about the siege works and the encampment. And this is, again, siege warfare, ancient siege warfare. Uh, the bad guys were encamped around the city. Um, they would use what was called the siege mound. And this is interesting because the Romans kind of perfected this, but the Romans weren't anything in this period of time. So Isaiah, if, if you didn't know about God, you say, boy, this, this prophet, he's a genius. He, he knew stuff that happened hundreds of years, centuries before it happened. But you have to remember, he was getting his information from God, and God knows the future. So the Assyrians did not get into the city, but the Babylonians did in 586 B.C. through a long siege, and so did the Romans in A.D. 70. And this is something that Jesus predicted in Luke 19 and Luke 21 about 40 years before it took place. So you see these layers that uh, Isaiah is speaking about, these layers of the future. So we can look at the past and go, oh, that was brilliant. That's amazing because it's the past. We, of course, we, we know the past. But there's going to be a future event that the Bible says that, unfortunately, Jerusalem will be, will be attacked again. And that will be this, this global leader who uh, has ultimate control, very authoritarian, and he, has, uh, he turns on the Jewish people. And we can see ideas starting to line up in the world, whether it be the UN or other discussions among the nations. Um, but I'll talk about that as well. So there's one future battle that will take place in the earth's future, right? But Zechariah 14 says that the Lord will stop that final siege on Jerusalem, and then he'll bring in this beautiful millennial kingdom, which we've been talking about for months. So here, where do we leave off? We leave off because of sin. We leave off with the, um, unfortunately, with those under the banner of God's people. Verse 4, their voice is coming out of the ground. They're whispering out of the dust. It's a place of brokenness, humility, and repentance. And after a while, you get the hang of the metaphors in the Scripture. You start to really get the language. You know, it takes a little while, though. Uh, verse 5, continuing on, remember, all of God's Word is knowable. He put it here so that we can read it, understand it, study it, and apply it to our lives. So verse 5, he says, Moreover, the multitude of your foes, or Jerusalem, your foes, shall be like fine dust. Wow, the dust kind of metaphor changes here and it goes to the other side and the multitude of the terrible ones shall be as chaff that passes away yet it shall be in an instant suddenly you will be punished by the lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise with storm and tempest 
and the flame of devouring fire. Sounds like Revelation. The multitude of all the nations who fight against Ariel or Jerusalem, even all who fight against her and her fortress and distress her, shall be as a dream of a night vision. It shall be even as when a hungry man dreams and looks, he eats, but he awakes and his soul is still empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreams and looks, he drinks, (laughs) but he awakes and indeed he is faint and his soul still craves. So the multitude of the nation shall be who fight against Mount Zion. This, this two out of six is the frustration of Israel's enemies who try to come against her and they just can't be satisfied. And we'll talk about these metaphors. But what does he do? What God does is he starts to change the imagery. And we left off with Jerusalem whispering out of the dust, humility, broken, repentance. But here, God now attacks Israel's enemies who are trying to get in and trying to hurt her, right? Likening them to dust that he blows away in the wind. And this is what happened when he took out the Assyrian army, wholesale. And folks, he can do the same thing with us. You know, maybe we don't have 185,000 troops outside of our house trying to hurt us, but we have other things. Maybe we have somebody trying to get us fired. Maybe we have somebody that's trying to hurt our reputation. But just like the fine dust here and the chaff, just like this, he can just blow it away like dust, and it's gone. It's not going anywhere. (laughs) It's it's not going to hurt anybody anymore. Uh, It is going to have no lasting effects. So, you know, you got to claim, for those of you that were nodding off, I got you to open your eyes. I see it. Uh, but, But basically, this is the God that we serve. You know, if we're doing the right thing and it is his will, you know, he can overcome these challenges that face us that we're powerless to prevent. Verses 6 and 7, we start to see some cataclysms. And I talked about revelation, the storms, the fire. So basically, yes, there's a layers of prophecy that we, that we experienced or we saw in the historical record, but, ju- but the Lord is also speaking about future occurrences and the last battle. Um, and as a matter of fact, I'm probably at some point going to talk about um, this, the coalition, uh, the recent bombings in Syria. I covered this a few, several months ago in Isaiah 17, how Damascus is going to be front and center. And boy, a week after I, I gave that sermon, it was the first bombing. So I'm going to get into it. I don't, you know, I need a little time for it. But you can see Iran and Russia and these nations right on Israel's border that the Bible speaks about in great detail. I mean, literally, when God speaks about the end times, a lot of people who don't know geopolitics have no idea what all this is. They don't realize how significant it is in our future and Israel's future. But we're going to cover that. Uh, Verse 8, the frustration of Jerusalem's enemies to destroy her. And and basically, (laughs) um, it's, it's a metaphor. So, Somebody who, listen, I'll just use myself in his example. Sometimes my wife says you're too transparent. Uh, but this sometimes I'm, I don't know, I go to bed and I didn't, maybe I didn't eat enough for dinner. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm hungry. And my brain is telling me my stomach is rumbling and I'm, I'm in bed and I'm dreaming all night of eating. <laughs> and because nothing's going in my stomach, my brain is still saying you're hungry. What a horrible night's sleep. <laughs> so the whole night I'm dreaming about eating and it's a steak and a smorgasbord and I wake up and I'm not satisfied. You see, so it's a, it's a good metaphor. So I actually, actually I combat that now. If I go to bed, I'm a little hungry. 
I have a little piece of wheat bread with some butter, and I, I eat it before I go to bed. Solves the problem all the time. The other thing is the uh, person who, who goes to bed, and they're thirsty, and they're dreaming about... <laughs> I'm not going to get into too, too much detail, but they're dreaming about drinking water and drinking water and drinking water, and their brain is still telling them, you're, you're parched, you're still thirsty. Um, I usually sleep on my side, but every once in a while I roll onto my back, and my mouth is like open, and you know it just gets all dry, and the whole night I'm drinking water, but I'm still not satisfied. So I use myself as an example, but this is the metaphor, is that Israel's enemies are going to they could taste it, that they want to destroy her, and God just holds them back. As a matter of fact, he confounds them. Uh, I, love, I love the metaphors he, he uses here. It's a, a picture of them not having satisfaction in their pursuits. Continuing on in verse 9, it says that, pause and wonder, blind yourselves and be blind. Okay, we're back to, we're back to the Israelites, and I'll show you why. Blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets. And he has covered your heads, namely the seers. So um, three out of six is we're back to the Israelites. And the prophet Isaiah characterizes them, uh, the people, as being in a spiritual blindness, a spiritual stupor. And unfortunately, it wasn't that they were dumb. It wasn't that they couldn't control themselves. What he was basically saying is the world and the draw of evil was pulling them away from God, and they allowed themselves to get to this place. And we're going to talk about how God pleaded with them to change and you know, all the, all the benefits and the blessings that he has, and they refused to do it, and where did they end up? And we'll look at that. Not a good place. But they caused their own calamities. They caused their own calamities. This happened in Isaiah's day. This happened in Jesus' day. And it also will happen in the future uh, under this last battle situation. And here's the deal. If we push God out of our lives long enough, he will eventually be... Why? Because he respects himself. He'll be, okay, you know, he'll separate from us. You know, I've always said that if we find out that we're somewhere and we notice that God's separated from us, he didn't move. God is a constant in his creation. God is a constant with his love for people, his love for sinners. If we find ourselves where there's a gap, he didn't move, we moved. Right? The Bible says that your sins will separate you from God. And that's why the world needs Jesus. Because he came to fix that broken situation. Verse 9, pause and wonder. It also means to take a look in the mirror. You know, these people had a lack of spiritual self-awareness. And today we live in a culture that seems to want to blame everyone else for our problems. There's a problem in our culture with personal responsibility. You know, and unfortunately, the culture has changed so much. People say, oh, it's the young people. It isn't just the young people. It's people my age and people older. It's so much easier to blame somebody else than for our own problems. So personal responsibility is something that God preaches through his books. You know, we have mirrors in our homes. I'm sure all of us have a mirror somewhere. And what do they do? They point out physical faults. The word of God, on the other hand, when we look into that, it points out spiritual faults. That's what the word of God is for. 
for us to not believe our own propaganda and to be the president of our own fan clubs. It's for us to read the Bible and say, whoa, that's God's standard. I don't measure up. Now, if you're not a believer, hopefully it brings you closer to Christ because, again, he fixed that situation, but you have to trust in him. And for believers, in order for us to grow, we need to be in the word of God to understand what his standard is. A lot of God's word is just, it's logical. It just makes sense no matter what you're looking at, right? So here's the descent. What does he cover? Spiritual blindness, spiritual drunkenness, spiritual staggering, spiritual deep sleep, spiritual eyes closed. A hardening of a heart towards God. And tragically, who is he speaking to? Those under the umbrella of God's people. Something came to mind, and I thought of Samson and Delilah. And uh, the night that that the Philistines were going to come, and kick the door in and hold him down and pluck his eyes out and make him a slave. Uh, Samson was lulled to sleep by, Lala, by Delilah on her knees, the Bible says. I could just picture her stroking him, stroking him. His eyes start to close. She knew all along what she was going to do. And he's out cold. And then she cuts his hair. The Philistines come in. That's the end of Samson for a long time. And... That's a picture of the world. It lulls us to sleep. It's a slow descent. Uh, and it, and some, we wake up sometimes, hopefully not, and find out, gee, I'm, I'm far away from God. But it's, a, you know, Satan has plenty of time to do this. I want to read to you Amos 8, 11 through 12, two verses. Amos 8 is another prophet, Amos. And it says, quote, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God that I will send a famine on the land, but not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water. He's not speaking physically. But of hearing the words of the Lord, they shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. Now, if we're believers, that right there should have caused our heart, a pang in our heart, to not hear from God. You know, I pray on a regular basis, and if, if something's going on in my life and I sense that he's not answering or he's delaying, I, I get concerned, and I, I pray more. And I'm like, all right, Lord, am I doing something wrong here? You know what I'm saying? Because I always want to hear from him. I want to hear from him. I want him to be with me in all my travels through the good and the bad. So here's a, a situation with the Israelites that uh, God sent a famine of the word, right? There was over 300 years of prophetic silence between the prophet Malachi and John the Baptist. That's a long time for God's people to not hear one of their prophets. But they caused that situation. And again, let's talk about the Christian culture. Some, under the guise of Christianity, wouldn't even know if God speak, stopped speaking with them. Because they're all into the hype. As long as they have their, you know, some author and pastor wrote a book and they got that and, and they, they go to their Christian rock concerts, they wouldn't have any idea whether God's speaking to them or not speaking to them. Again, we have to make this parallel. Some pastors don't want to do it, but I feel it's necessary. This is not a popularity contest up here. So we look at this. Um, and truthfully, the people, some of the people really hated Isaiah. They really hated him. And you would say, oh, I love the book of Isaiah. Right, but if you were living in the time and you were doing bad things and he was calling you out, you might feel the same way about him too. And when you do the right thing, and when you are accountable to somebody, and when you love someone enough to tell them the truth, sometimes people will hate you for it. But if you're never hated and you're teaching the Bible, then you've got to ask yourself, am I doing this right? Or am I just telling people what they want to hear? 
Uh, John 9, 39 through 41 in the New Testament, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders. Remember, supposedly God's people, the umbrella. And he says this, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see. So those that want God, that their eyes are open to the truth of who God is in Christ. And that those who see may be made may be made blind. And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, are we blind also? He could have said, oh, no, no, you guys are fine. This was really courageous on the part of our Lord because there was a system, and the system was rigged. Before a famous person said that, this system was definitely rigged against the people. Last verse, Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. That's, if you really think about some of the, the riddles and the enigmas and the way Jesus spoke, and you really, really chew on it, it's powerful. So they're the religious systems. They were political, they were wealthy, they had a lot of power, and the people were just pawns that they controlled. And Jesus called them out. And Jesus said, well, you say that you see, you think that you're actually representing God, you're going to be held to a higher standard because you're not doing any of the things you're supposed to be doing. Good stuff here. Um, a little bit of an aside, I think, that, I think that our country is coming under a spiritual anesthesia. Have you ever seen so much division? This has been happening for a while. You know, and the seeds of, of division have just been sowed and they're starting to mature and everybody's hostile to everybody. You see, I read stories and... 11, 12, 13 kids committing heinous crimes. Um, even some where they lure other kids out into a field and torture them and kill them. And I'm thinking, wow, that's, that's what's going on here. I mean, I know what's going on. Listen, England banned guns, and then people were killing each other with knives and box trucks. So you know what England did? They banned knives and acid and a bunch of other stuff. Pretty, just, why don't you just put everybody in a rubber room, you know, so they can... You know, put straitjackets on all of us. It isn't the knives, it isn't the guns, it isn't the cars, it's the heart. The human heart is desperately wicked, Jeremiah says. You can ban everything you want. What is the expression that uh, Cain killed Abel with a rock? Oh, no rocks. No, no rocks bigger than a pebble. You know, you could hurt somebody with that. But this is what's going on in our world. And it's almost as if God's saying, you know, you keep pushing me out of public life and, pr- and private life. I'm over here with my blessings. I respect myself. When you're ready to repent as a nation and come back to me, you get me and you get my blessings. God respects himself. So, important stuff. Verses 11 through 12, Isaiah says, The whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one who is literate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I'm not literate. I can't read. So God's people were were blind spiritually. They were drunk spiritually. And here, even the words, they had a lack of spiritual understanding and discernment. You know? And I think... It's also a problem in the Christian culture. I think we're so bombarded. And people say, this, oh, the, the phones and the this and the that. I've got to be honest with you. I'm distracted too. You know, for me to actually, you know, guess my wife, I have to actually leave my house and walk down this kind of country path road by a stream just to get some quiet. 
you know, turn, put my phone on vibrate or turn it off. And there's just so many distractions. And that's the world's purpose. That's Satan's purpose, to distract us, distract us, distract us so that we can't focus on God, right? There's a system that's poised against people getting closer to their God. And it's everywhere, unfortunately. Bible illiteracy is a big problem, I believe, in the church. You know, there's a lot of churches you, you go to on a Sunday morning, they don't even open the word. They don't even mention a scripture. What are they talking about? Politics? Global warming? I mean, we're supposed to be talking about the word, the Acts church, the Bible. When we get together, what are we supposed to be doing when we come together? We're supposed to be encouraging each other, praying with each other, lifting each other up, edifying each other with the word of God. And if, if we're not doing that, then we're really not a church. We're just another social organization. I'm amazed at how many Christians today are following a globalist agenda. When I get saved some 20-something years ago, we studied about the Antichrist. We studied about this push to remove Western sovereignty and get all these nations together in a unified Europe with one head, and he takes over the banking system, and he takes over the military, and, and basically you can't resist. Gee, when, when the NSA started doing their things in our country, I'm thinking, oh yeah, they're saying we're not spying on you. I don't believe any of it. They probably see when we pick up our phone, they're looking at us, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and I'm not paranoid, it's just the technology's there. And it gets out every once in a while. And you've got Christians who are like going, going gaga for these globalists that are trying to bring this, this whole one united system together. They're basically following something that's going to rise the Antichrist to power. But, but I'm a Christian. Read your word, you know what I'm saying? If nothing else today, it's we need to read our words. Otherwise, we could be going in the wrong direction. Globalism today is chic, you know what I'm saying? It's cool, but it shouldn't be. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that there's, there's times that we should come together as nations and try to solve problems, but like the United Nations, they do a lot of that without God. They do a lot of that without Christ. You know, I mean, in Africa, there's uh, Christians who are being slaughtered in Sudan and now Nigeria and a lot of other places. And I think sometimes we pick and choose who we want to be the world's policeman to. So if you're going to do it, do it all or don't do it at, at, at all. Don't help some people and not help other people. It's my little, my little aside there. But um, another question, folks. Five, you've been a Christian, a Christian five or ten years. If somebody came to you intellectually and said to you, your, your faith is stupid. You believe in Jesus? Some guy hung up on, on a tree? Tell me why I should, I should listen to you been a Christian 5, 10, 15 years. Do we know our word? Could we articulate why we believe what we believe? And if we can't, we should do some soul searching. You know, if somebody comes to you and they're going through a crisis and they ask you about your God and your Jesus and who you believe in and they're looking for your help and we go, oh, I better call up my pastor. No, no, no. We all have the ministry of reconciliation. This is important stuff. You know, there's cultural Christians who know you know, the songs to Katy Perry and lines from the movie, sports stats, and the difference between Michael Kors and Gucci bags, but, but they don't know anything about the Scripture. You know, I mean, listen, this is uncomfortable up here. I'm sweating, you know what I'm saying? But, but it's the truth. It's the, it's the absolute truth. Jesus said very plainly in John 14, if you love me, you follow my word. If we don't know what the word says, then how do we know if we love him if we're not following it with our lives or not? Now, folks, don't get me wrong. Everyone's at different levels, and uh, we all sin. I have to repent every day. So I'm not saying that when you're tr truly a Christian, you don't sin and you're perfect. That's never going to happen. But I'm saying, do we truly believe in Christ? Have we truly given our heart to him? Do we truly want to obey him as, a, as a, our God, as our spiritual spouse? 
Or are we just kind of straddling the fence between the world and God? The world and God. James says that you're double-minded and and you're really not going to get anywhere in life if you go through life like that. God is a jealous God. He's not going to let you put the world over him. And listen, we live, we love, we laugh, we have a good time, we do recreation, we do a lot of things as people. But is God the focus of our life? Or is he an afterthought? Or is he fire insurance, like a brother said to me? Fire insurance, I don't want to go, who? Nobody wants to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell, neither do I. <laughs> but I do love the Lord, you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, come on, let's get this, you know, let's get this down pat here. Verse 13, uh, therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near to me with their mouths, lip service, they honored me with their lips, but have removed their heart far from me. And even their fear toward me or their reverence towards me is taught by the commandment of men. It's not even, it's not even natural. Therefore, behold, I will send, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are all in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows us? Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? God is the potter, we're clay. He forms us and he fashions us and he perfects us and matures us. Um, for shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? So five out of six is true faith or pretend faith. God was basically saying your pretend faith is going to have dire consequences. If we could put up Matthew 15, another conversation you know, some people say, like, they haven't read the Bible, and they're like, wow, I didn't realize all these conversations took place while Jesus was here. So here Jesus is having a conversation with the religious leaders who were supposed to be leading people to the faith, and he says this to them. Verse 1, Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem, they used to follow Jesus around trying to trip him up, they came to Jesus saying, Why do, you, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. This was like a ceremonial, it had nothing to do with the scripture. Constantly washing their hands, maybe OCD, I don't know. But, but they basically had these things and they felt they would make them more spiritual if they did it. Continuing on. But he answered and said to them, why do you also transgress, the religious leaders, the commandment of God because of your traditions? For God commanded saying, honor your father and your mother and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, religious leaders, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me has been dedicated to the temple, is released from honoring his father or mother. Thus you, sh- you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Basically, it was a religious scam. So the, the religious leaders wanted to get richer. And we see this today, don't we? So over-focused on money. So they would say to somebody who was wealthy, Listen, if you dedicate your money to the temple, to us, don't worry about mom and dad. We'll find somebody to take care of them. And this is the practice that took place. So Jesus is saying, you don't even honor your mother and your father. You're trying to, or people, you're trying to get their money and put their parents like out on the street. It's pretty sick. Seven, hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, so Jesus now is referring to this. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips 
but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So everything flipped. Here's the word of God. Here's what we think. They put the, the commandments of men above the word of God. It would supersede it. Then he called the multitude and said, Hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, I love this, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Jesus, do you realize who you just offended? This is not going to bode well for our group. But he answered and said to them, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. For those of you that are not super knowledgeable of the Bible, that's impressive. You know, you read about Jesus. He always said the right thing. He didn't try to massage it or or have a popularity contest. So we continue on. Verse 14, he says, The wisdom of the wise shall perish. So we went from Jesus' day. Let's go back to Isaiah, right? 8th century B.C. You know that the Apostle Paul in the first century picked this up in 1 Corinthians 1. He says the same thing. Because the Greeks were, they were so full of philosophy and so full of learning in their libraries, which is great. But when they heard about Jesus, a lot of the super educated academics, you follow somebody that died on a tree. They didn't get it. But they didn't get it because they were so they were so prideful in their arrogance and their intellect that they didn't want to get it. And this was going on at the time of Jesus too. What were they doing? Well, there was an imminent invasion on Jerusalem. And what was happening was the leaders were saying, I know what Isaiah said. Boy, he's annoying. I'm paraphrasing. He just keeps coming in and telling us we're doing the wrong thing. Forget about Isaiah. Forget about the scripture. We have to save this city. So they would send emissaries to Egypt. This is all historical fact. And they would say, help us. And God would say, you've got to stop doing that. I'm going to fix the problem with the Assyrian army. And you had this conflict. God's trying to save his own city that he established. And the people were saying, just like it says here, no, we know better. We know better. We'll do it ourselves. We're going to do it our way. So what did he do? He confounded them. Verse 15 and 16. They said, who sees us? Who knows? And, and listen, there was one particular scripture where a king was uh, confronted by his officers and said, the king was like, how is my intelligence keep getting out to Israel? And he says, there is a God there in Israel that he hears the secret things you say in your bedchamber. So if God wants what you say to get out, it's going to get out. And people do that today in government. They hide, they cover themselves, you know, they do all these things. But if God wants to expose it, he will expose it. So who knows us? Who sees us? Right? God sees. Verse 16, it gets worse. The clay, us, people, humans, they were trying to say to the Creator, we know better. Or we're equal to you. We can see that in pantheism today. God is equal with His creation. We can see that with secular humanism. We've come into an enlightened period of of human beings that we don't need God anymore. Well, there's still more poverty, more killings, more wars, more conflicts. What have we accomplished as people, right? We need to turn to the living God. Um, Even Mormonism says that when you die, you can become a God. And you can be equal to the the God that created you. When you die, he kind of elevates you. You have your own kingdom, universe, etc. So you see this going on today. 
even trying to make God, if you read this, under... So here's the potter, God, and the clay, and the clay now is flipped. So he's going to kind of tell God what to do. If you follow the prosperity gospel, when you pray in the prosperity gospel, you basically tell God, here's my wish list of things that I want. I want you to do it for me. And I've listened to a lot of prosperity preachers. I never once heard them say, pray for God's will in your life for you to humble yourself and to serve him. I always hear, if you're not getting the raise, if you're not getting the million dollars, you have to, you have to repeat it. The mantra, you have to tell God that this is what you want. You have to claim it. It's not what the scripture says. So this, is, this junk is everywhere, unfortunately, in our culture. It gets worse. Verse 16. Basically, he said, as, it, as if it could get worse, the, the, the people say to God, he did not make me. Okay? Evolution. Okay, world believes in evolution. I get it. No God. That's what you want to do. No problem. Aliens, panspermia, they have all these theories. But I hear Christians saying, well, what if evolution's true? We've got, let's go back to Genesis. <laughs> before, you know, there was no death before sin, so there could be no evolution before the fall, and God created everything before the fall. Come on, let's get our Bibles out. I'll tell you this, evolution. If I was at the beach, my mom sent me a text. <laughs> so does she know I'm preaching? <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway. So if I was at the beach, and this iPhone washed up, I would look at it and find the text from my mom and the, the address book and all this kind of stuff, and I would say either one or two things. Wow, um, somebody did a lot of organization. Whose phone is this? Or the other thing I might say is, oh, I want to look at the brand. Who made this phone? This thing is pretty intricate. But with the human body, we go, wow, millions and millions of years of accidents produced that body. That's incredible. We, we wouldn't use that ignorance with, with technology, would, would we? It's a signature on everything that... Now, can I tell you something? Well, I studied the human body, anatomy, and physiology. This thing has nothing on the human body. The error correcting, the, uh, the digitalness of it, the, the signals that it sends, the redundancy of the musculoskeletal system, hormonal system, the brain reroutes itself, neural digging. I mean, when you can really go through it, and this is, has nothing on the human body. But people say... You did not make me. That's exactly what they were saying here. But again, we see this today. Back then, there was a culture that, there were a culture of believers who really had no relationship with God. They had no reverence. And it, be, it made them arrogant. Is intelligence and uh, wisdom any mark of civility and humanitarianism? No. Look at the 1940s Germany. They had, the, they had jet propulsion technology. They had, they had everything before us. Thankfully for us, some of their scientists left and came our way. They had everything. All the major discoveries, for, and I have no ethnicity of German in me, but impressive, their, their intelligence level. And look what happened. Look at the Holocaust. You know, we look at our, our country. A few years back, there was this big scandal. You know, we're so smart too, the United States, biotechnology, etc. So what do we do with it? We encourage people to have abortions, take the fetuses, and then sell body parts so we can make money off of it. And, of course, science. Intelligence, wisdom is no marker of morality or civility. So God basically 
allowed them to be confounded in a lot of their wisdom. And a lot of their leaders were taken out as a result of this. Last few verses, 17, he says, Is it not yet a very little while till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field? Now we're, we're moving into the future, okay? And the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the terrible one is brought to nothing, the scornful one is consumed, and all who watch for iniquity are cut off, who make a man an offender by a word, who lay a snare for him, who reproves in the gate, and turn aside the just for a thing of naught. Therefore, says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall now not be ashamed. Or Jacob was also the precursor, the father of Israel, the nation. Nor shall his face now grow pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in the midst, they will hallow my name and hallow the Holy One of Jacob and fear the God of Israel. These also who erred in spirit will come to understanding and those who murmured will learn doctrine. So this is the, the good news, six out of six, restoration of God's people. My personal opinion when I read the prophetic books is the human psyche can only take so much negativity. Um, God had to bring discipline. He had to bring conviction, but he always brought a silver lining. He always brought a light at the end of the tunnel, all my cliches this morning. But basically, he always sprinkled good work and good news and something to look forward to. If we could put up the second image of the timeline, and again, we've done this a few times. So here, you're roughly at the 8th century BC, right? The Jewish people. Here you have the first coming of Christ. We are in the church age. We're right about here. And then this is this millennial kingdom where Jesus finally stops the wars and the bombings. He comes back to earth and is really a paradise on earth. Pretty neat, and we, we kind of move into eternity. So this is the Lord's timeline. So here, Isaiah will speak about things that are happening in his time. He, he overshoots us in 2018, speaks about a, an awesome future. And then sometimes he actually goes and speaks about the time of Christ. When you look at the eyes of the blind being opening and you look opened and the ears of the deaf uh, being unstopped so they could hear, uh, Jesus, when he came, kind of gave us a little taste of what the millennial kingdom would be like. What did he spend most of his time doing? He raised the dead. He fed the poor. Nobody went hungry when they were hanging out with Jesus. So um, he opened the eyes of the blind. He healed people's sins. He, he stilled the, the waves of the sea. You know, all these things in our future. There won't be these cataclysms anymore. There won't be death. Uh, so, you know, Jesus kind of, he gave us a taste of what to look forward to when the Lord remakes all things. And that's beautiful. I love that. Jesus is really the only hope in this world. And you might be here and you might be a skeptic. And we can talk after service. We can talk a lot. But, and I was a skeptic for many years. And you can keep trying to do it this way, that way, the other way, the world's way. Well, the UN will figure it out. Well, the, the country will figure it out. America will figure it out. But the bottom line is the only hope is in Christ because we're not going to figure it out. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Verses 22 through 24, Jacob or Israel, in a sense, he's looking over his descendants in the millennial kingdom. He sees them restored and doing a good spiritual work. So Isaiah starts out with some really bad news. But by the time we get to the end, 
Isaiah, the Lord through Isaiah is showing us the good news, the things that we can look forward to, and that's beautiful. From the beginning of the chapter, God calls out cultural believers who have the, all the accoutrements of faith, but their hearts were not with them. Now, again, I have a lot of conversations. Is God a mean God? Is he mean? No, he's not. No, he's not. You know what mean would be? Uh, there's a cliff over there. Wave back. Yeah. <laughs> You're walking backwards and you fall off the cliff. God always tries to keep us from that cliff. Now, some people willingly go off the cliff. Some will willingly take the wide road that Jesus said that leads to destruction. But Jesus is always trying to call us his way. He's always trying to call us on the narrow road that leads to everlasting life. So Jesus did this in the first century. Again, not to be mean, but to shake people out of their complacency and a false foundation of religion and accoutrements and observances. That doesn't save us. Trust in Jesus saves us. Now, what, I'll tell you what I'm not saying, and this isn't in my notes. I definitely have to say this. If you trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior that he died for your sins, you're saved. You're not part of that circle of false believers. You are part of the true church. But I'm struggling with this sin. You, have you trusted in Christ? Do you repent? You're good. But I'm not perfect. But I don't know the scripture that well. There's just one requirement to get in. Repent of your sins and your self-directed life and follow him. Understand? So I, Isaiah's not making it difficult. I'm not making it difficult. However, there is a culture of believers even today that they... Their peers are Christians. They work at a Christian com company. Most of their associates are Christians, and I see Christians do this. They think that it's going to make them more spiritual when they become a Christian. They get rid of their old doctor. They get a Christian doctor. <laughs> they get rid of their school. They take their kids to the Christian school. Let me tell you something. There's no guarantees there. There's no guarantees there. It's the heart of the individual. They almost cloister themselves in a Christian bubble, and that doesn't mean anything. It really doesn't. And I'm, saying, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. What I'm saying is, I could, I could lie to you all day long up here and you won't know, but God will because he sees my heart. He sees every single person's heart. He knows who loves him and who doesn't. He knows who trusts him and who doesn't. So it's a very simple equation. I think what happens is we make it more complicated. I think that's what I'm trying to say here. So in closing, um, you might be a cultural Christian and you might say, you know what, I, I really need to step it up. If I really look at myself, I, I don't really love the Lord. I don't really follow Him. I just want to give you hope. We're going to give you an opportunity when the service ends to come up today and to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. You've been listening to to every generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.